Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Okay, I'm delighted to welcome to the show now, not just one of the world's great writers, but I think a beacon of sanity and common sense in a world gone mad. Margaret Atwood, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm great, thanks. We spoke, Margaret, the last time um, you came here. We did. Yes, you read my palm. I did. What, how was I? You were excellent. You said that oh, I had good. dictatorial tendencies, but that I had possibly uh, managed to uh, to not fulfill that destiny. <laughs> so listen. That's good. And Margaret, you have a wonderful new collection of stories, All Babes in the Wood. I have to say, I was pleased to see that you included in the book the word shite. I presume you picked that up here in Ireland, did you? Well, it was common among a, in a certain generation. Um, but certainly it's you hear it in Ireland too. But I think you would have heard it quite a bit in the Canadian Army at uh, one point. But I think the person who says that is Irish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so shite is a word you would have grown up hearing, would you? No, not me. People probably a little bit older than me, but uh, we we were not a swearing family. Oh, so I wouldn't I see. have heard it. <laughs> you see, the thing about shite is, though, that it is a slightly politer word. You notice with the gusto that I'm banding it around here that it is regarded as a kind of a softer um, curse word. Is it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think okay, it takes... I learned, I learned something. Yeah, you see, the E takes the edge off what the word is otherwise. There's less contempt in it or something, you know what I mean? It's, oh, it's does one... that apply to all of the other curse words too, then? Well, you can add on an E onto any of them and you can say them anywhere, Margaret. <laughs> oh, dear. Listen, uh, Margaret, can I tell you something? Certainly. So before I... Before I read the book, okay, so when I heard I was having you on, I I, I googled and uh, to see what you were up to, and I found the title story of the book, and it was actually you reading it on the New Yorker website, and I would encourage anyone to go and have a listen to you reading it because it is a treat. But you know, I was I was on one of my walks listening to it, and I actually was uh, at times I had to wipe away a little tear because I just thought in a low key way. It was one of the saddest, most beautiful and kind of devastating explorations of age and having a history and looking back and all of that. And I was thinking then, is is age and the passing of time, is that one of your themes and preoccupations now, whether you like it or not, kind of? Uh, whether I like it or not, I'm 83. So people of my age... Uh, should they be so lucky as to reach it, uh, naturally are occupied with that because they know a lot of people um, who are dying or who are dead. And it's just what happens in life. Yeah. But now, the old babes in the book, they're not sad, all of them. They kind of they kind of have grit. They have a laugh. Um, I think they kind of revel in not having to care anymore. You have a great phrase, when you're old, you're off the hook for almost everything. Is it kind of liberating to become an old babe? (laughs) Well, in a way it is, you know. Um, I think we worry less because um, what's to lose? Mm -hmm. 
Um, the book is, and you've, you've intimated there about knowing people who have died and everything. And look, the book is, I think, probably sh- shot through with grief and, and, and with your own grief. And you were, you were grieving your partner, Graham, when you wrote it. And I, I'm not going to ask you to get into a big meditation on your own private grief. But could I ask you about two aspects of grief that you refer to in the book? Because I think, I think it'd be useful for people. Yes. Okay, so uh, there there are characters Nell and, and Tig, and Tig is is Nell's late partner. Nell refers a few times uh, about Tig, about him still being there. Um, I think she says at one point, a, a, an imaginary friend who's a dead person. And I think you actually allude to magical thinking in it. And then you said in your own acknowledgements in the book that Graham is still very much with you. Can you tell me a bit about that, about that magical thinking and the person still being with you after they die? This is a very, very common experience that people have. So um, since I know a lot of widows and some of them widowers, um, it just it seems to be something that happens to a lot of people. And um, people of my age will back me up on that. So one story in the book called Widows was just published in The Guardian, and they got some incoming saying, um, yep, that's what happens. And I, so I think it's it's part of human experience, but you, you can't know that when you're younger unless you have had somebody very, very close to you die when you were um, a young age. Yeah. And is the person there in a comforting way? Well, usually yes. Okay. That seems to be the that seems to be the common experience. And and that is the experience you've had. Oh, that is certainly the experience that me and a bunch of my pals mm. have had. And listen, I know um, Graham had Alzheimer's and Tig in the book. No, did, he he didn't have oh, Alzheimer's. He had he had vascular dementia, which is a different thing. Okay, I beg your pardon. Um, how is it different? Well, for instance, he never lost the sense of who he was. And uh, he never lost his, I mean, talking to him, you wouldn't think there was anything wrong. So he lost something called executive function, which means how do you work the computer? Like okay. that. So which button do you push? So he was always himself. He was always himself, and he fully intended to uh, depart the earthly realm while he still was himself. Yeah, because there's... uh, Nell, at one point, is tearing up pictures from the last year of Tig's life because she's saying, you know, she's looking at pictures and saying, no, he wasn't himself there, and she wants to obliterate that. Well, he looks too sad. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. I thought it might be that thing that I know a lot of people when someone dies with a form of dementia, they almost have to reclaim the person after the person dies, reclaim who the person was before. That's also a common experience. Um, but I think we do that, you know, even if the person if the person has been quite old, such as my mother, who died at 97, um, she wasn't the person at 97 that, that, that she was at 35. Yeah. Few people are. But, of course, you would prefer to remember that person when they were really having a good time, when they were fully in charge of their life. Uh, 
I think that's also a very uh, common experience. Of course, if you've disliked the person, if they've been horrible, you have a whole different set of reactions. Go on. You think, you think good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't come back. <laughs> okay. Uh, I haven't had that. I haven't had that form of grief yet in my life. I must say. I don't think that's grief. Okay. I think that would be called celebration. <laughs> um, on grief, you say you write in the book, grief is not eternal. I think basically because there isn't any other end that you come back out into the light again. Oh uh, well, that's true. So it's not a tunnel. It's a it's an intermittent experience. Go on. Comes and goes. Okay. Think of the ocean. Think of the moon waxes and wanes. Yeah. Listen. So the moon's always there, but sometimes you see a lot more of it. Gotcha. The, there's the old babes also echo another of your themes, uh, which is kind of dogma and fanaticism and punishing heretics and, and, you know, both on the right and left, I think you're equal opportunities about that. There, there, in one of the stories, there's a bunch of old, I guess, are they first wave or second wave kind of feminists, but they talk well, they about... they would be second wave. Second first wave, wave was... was <laughs> yes, yes, they're first second wave. First wave was in the 19th century. <laughs> so the, these are second wavers for sure. Yeah, uh, they talk about sure. the puritanical moment we're passing through and they're, they're kind of, I think they're talking about the woke, young woke progressives. They're saying they want heads on spikes, they're ultra critical. Is that you having a little take off the young woke progressives? Oh, I think that is the that is my whole generation having a little dig. So as you and I can remember being just like that when I was young. Oh, uh, you think you know everything, and you think you're entitled to pass judgment, and then things get uh, quite a lot more nuanced as you see more and experience more. Yeah, you, you, I, I think you say, one of them says, joking happens less frequently in the puritanical moment we're passing through. And then I was thinking, what, was it more fun changing the world back at the second waivers in the 60s and 70s? You, were you less po-faced about it, do you think, or were you just as po-faced oh, at the time? They were completely, they were not po-faced much at all. I mean, uh, some of them were, I would say the work boots and overall brigade were um, <laughs> but the ones doing um, performance art were absolutely not they did some pretty funny things yeah and they had a lot more sex I think back then as well did they now now Brendan <laughs> I hope this is not a personal question no so no for one thing, we're, we we're speaking not, about Margaret we're know. calling them they yeah, I don't know how much sex people are having now, so I can't make a comparative <laughs> judgment about it. <laughs> and and what do you know about that, pray tell? I'm in the middle there somewhere. Oh, so. are you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I really don't know. I think sex got shut down during AIDS quite a lot. Yeah. So when the AIDS crisis was going on, it wasn't pur being puritanical, it was being cautious, um, say the reports from my younger friends. Uh, you just, you were a lot more careful. 
there was I think there was a slight window there that happened after the pill became more readily available and before AIDS. And it wasn't always positive either because uh, if you could, you were expected to, and that's not fun either. So are the second waivers now, are, are they kind of appalled by the young progressives and the wokeness, or do they laugh at it? Well, or? first of all, let's say that uh, these terms get, get thrown around as as uh, terms of abuse by people on the right, so I'd, I prefer not to use them. Okay. Uh, instead of progressives, I would rather say fair-minded, even though they sometimes aren't, uh, and rather than I would I would prefer to use um, aware of things like uh, class differences and um, money inequalities and racial discrimination, rather than just applying a kind of catch-all label, which um, has, has now become so vague as to be practically meaningless. So what was the question? Are they appalled? Do, do, no, I have another question. Now, do you see what you just did to me there? Do you remember... What did I just re- do? Remember the old, <laughs> the, the old babes in the book, one of them says about how they change the passwords every day. You wake up one morning and you use the wrong password and suddenly bang That's off true. with your head. Yeah, I well, just... Well, that, that is true, but it's not the first time in history that that has happened. Um, in fact, it's just, um, if you go back century by century, it's kind of to be expected. So French Revolution, before French Revolution, aristocratic, good. During French Revolution, aristocratic, bad. Um, So these things change all the time. And I'm thinking of the American story, Rip Van Winkle, where he goes to sleep for 20 years and wakes up. It's the same pub but the head on it is now called George Washington <laughs> instead of King George. And it's the same head. It just has a different name. So, so where, that happens a lot. Yeah. Where do you think this particular revolution might settle? Um, we also have to be careful of the word revolution. Why is that? Because people think it means that everything's going to be equal. But what it really means is the revolution of the wheel of fortune. It's where we get the term revolution. And the wheel of fortune, a very ancient device going back to Rome, would have a king at the top, somebody crushed underneath at the bottom, somebody going up on one side and somebody coming down on the other. So Mm -hmm. it's not that everything gets to be fair and equal. It's that a different group of people gets to be at the top. And those who were at the top get smushed. So where is this particular moment in history going to settle? Moments in history don't really settle. <laughs> they, you get over them, and it's partly generational. So um, somebody said to me recently, well, my 17-year-old said to me, well, we're done with canceling because everybody in our school has either been canceled or they've canceled somebody else, and we're kind of tired of it. <laughs> uh, so that generation then comes up. And what was cool today is now really unfashionable tomorrow. And I think it is young people who drive these things by deciding what's cool. Yeah. So you're kind of saying that the current lot are going to grow out of it is basically what you're saying. They're but going then to get something older else is coming up be behind so lucky. them. Yeah. 
We're going to get older. No, uh, we yeah. Sorry, go on. The new, the new ones are more concerned with with action and less with the um, the puritanical exercise of examining the purity of your soul. So, I think they're they're more into let's actually do something about climate change rather than I'm purer than you because I get to say what's bad about you. Yeah. That, that's promising anyway, isn't it? Um, and listen, no, the right is still at it as well. It might sound as if we're kind of being mean about the, um, about the fair-minded. But well, the, I'm, wor- that, I'm actually more worried about the right. Yes, exactly. I see Because th- they actually seem to have more esteem uh, and more numbers. I see they're banning your books again, which is a kind of an alarming oh, development. Oh, they never isn't it? stopped. <laughs> never stopped. Really? Yes, it's it's a continual exercise, but they're making more fuss about it at the moment. And where do you see the right going or settling? Is it in the ascendant on the wheel of fortune? In some places, definitely yes. In other places, definitely not. Um, so if you're talking about the United States, I would say that once people realize that what the right wants to do is take away from them all of the new jobs that the Biden administration has created, then they won't have quite so much steam. So underneath, it's about money. They're trying to make it into a culture war, but it's really about money. So do you think that moment, that alarming moment in America that happened in those few years, you think that moment could be diffusing, do you? No, I don't. Oh. Um, It's it's an ongoing push and pull. Um, But I I will say that unless the Republicans come up with some kind of a workable plan that improves people's lives, unless they've got a really super-duper disinformation machine, um, people are, aren't going to like what they're proposing. Okay. Just before we leave this uh, area, we mentioned your books being banned. I, have you been following the this story about the uh, rewriting and re-editing of Roald Dahl's books for sensitivity? <laughs> I've been... Giving it a passing glance. Yeah. But, you know, he is what he is. And um, he, he uh, I don't know what they would do. I think they would have to create a whole different person. Yeah, they will eventually, I guess. You see, <laughs> the, thing, the thing that bothers me about it, do you not feel this? that, And, and you're a much better student of history than I am. Are we not, if we're rewriting the books now, we're going to have to rewrite them again in 10 years' time or 20 years' time if we're going with with whatever the whims oh, are at the time, aren't we? I think that's going to be called the restoration. 
So first you get Oliver Cromwell, <laughs> then you get the restoration. Okay, yeah. <laughs> do you know what, Margaret? They've actually done the restoration already because they very hurriedly said they were putting out, it, it's like classic Coke. They're putting out the classic Roald Dahl books uh, as well. So now they've got two sets on the go, I believe. Oh, they've got two sets. So one of them is called Nasty as Ever. <laughs> and the other is called <laughs> No Sugar. Um Yes, no harmful ingredients. I think that would be very, very difficult. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about, I suppose, look, we're talking about culture wars and all that kind of stuff, but we have a very real war. Um, it's being presented, I guess, as a as a clash between totalitarianism and, and democracy. What are your thoughts on the war in Ukraine? Well, for somebody of my age, it's like a reprise. So, born in 1939, spent childhood in the war, basically. Uh, not in the war, but the war was going on, and we were all surrounded by everything to do with it, including the rationing and the relatives that we knew that were there and uh, all of that kind of thing, the ominous radio broadcasts, etc., the newsreels. Um, so, this is... This territory, and if you're interested in it, there's a book by Timothy Snyder called Bloodlands about this very same territory. It's been fought over for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it was a big killing field in World War II. So it's it's like a sort of horrible echo. And um, if the West stepped in earlier... Um, it wouldn't still be going on. Mm. So to me, I'm thinking, okay, Czechoslovakia, they let that pass. Neville Chamberlain goes over and comes back and says, peace in our time, wrong. Um, it's like a it's like a go-ahead signal. So, yeah, I, I, I have been very worried about it from the beginning, but if you want to follow it logistically, you follow somebody called... Phillips P. O'Brien. Okay. And where will you find him? He writes for The Atlantic. He writes on, uh, he has a substack, and he, he's also on Twitter. And he called it from the beginning. He said, somebody said to him before the Russians actually did it, if Russia invades, will Zelensky leave? And he said, no. And they all went, ha, 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 ha. And he also said really early on, will that great big long convoy ever reach Kiev? And he said, no. And they all said, ha, 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 ha. Um, so for that reason, he's very worth listening to on this subject. And what's he saying right now? What he's saying, well, quite a few things. <laughs> I suppose in terms um, of the question we all want answered, which is like, how might this end or where does it go or how long does this go yeah. on for? No, Nobody knows the answers to that because there are too many moving pieces. Mm. So will China start supplying arms? Yes or no? We don't know. Um, how soon will uh, long-range artillery be operable? We don't know. So all of these are, are unknowns. Will Putin stop? Not unless he has to. But he's running out of stuff, according to Phillips P. O'Brien. 
Okay, well, well, listen, if O'Brien says that, maybe there's cause for hope. Margaret, two well, other... Well, he's, obvious, he's obviously of Irish descent, so you have to pay attention to him. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, two more important aspects of modern life you made, you make a kind of a stark mention of in, in the stories. So you have an imaginary conversation with George Orwell, which is very entertaining. <laughs> but you say to him, and this is now you as Margaret Atwood in the story says to him, you're explaining the internet and you say the effect of it has been to collapse privacy and erode the notion of the individual. Is that what the real Margaret Atwood thinks as well? Well, that's what everybody thinks. So I'm not alone. Okay, you're done on that one. All right, we, we, we move on. You talk, you talk as well about the time. On the, on the other hand, you <laughs> don't have to be on it. If you're really worried, just don't go there. But you're very actively on it, aren't you? And you're you're a, an avid Twitterer and all that kind of thing. So you are very engaged with it, aren't you? Up to a certain extent. So I, when I started on Twitter, really by accident, it was a much more benign place. Uh, it still is a, a great big bulletin board where you can get uh, instant information about what's going on. But, of course, you don't know whether it's true or not. So there's that aspect. That's a problem. Uh, the other uh, thing you talked about that I thought it was a nice way of putting it, you talk about the time before mobile phones when we had to wait without knowing. I can barely remember when we had to wait without knowing. And now you say you can't get away from people. They're in touch. They're touching. They're only a touch away. Is that better or worse? Is it better or worse? Pluses and minuses on both sides. Mm. Uh, on the on the one hand, being in touch is now pretty cheap. So possibly we don't value it as much as we once did. So waiting for the letter, you know, that was a very fraught exercise. And once upon a time, long-distance phone calls were very, very expensive. So you didn't make them just um, whenever you felt like talking to somebody. You had to have an occasion. So when the phone rang, it was always a bit alarming. Yeah, or exciting. Or alarming. Mm Mm-hmm. It depends on how you look at the world, Margaret. I'm clearly an optimistic well, I, person. I think the early the early days of email were, were sort of like that, in that, oh, goody, an Easter egg for me. But it wasn't always. Yes, we learned. And I, was excited, I was excited by the fax machine when it first appeared. <laughs> I presume then, that was... Of course, people figure out how to exploit these things, and your, and your whole floor would be filled up with ads when you got up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, have you met Greta Thunberg yet? I've never met her. So I was talking to her and yes. you had written a piece for her climate book. And I, I said did, to her, yes. you really should meet Margaret Atwood because I think she's the, the smartest person apart from you that I've ever spoken to. Margaret, <laughs> I think you and Greta together could be like the John and Yoko of climate or something. I really oh, think... Oh, please. <laughs> I think you should kind of... I know I know. neither of you probably wants to fly now because it would compromise the, the environment, but I think you should get together and have some kind of a summit or make some kind of a, a grand statement or something because I do think that... I, I, just, I just feel the two of you together will be greater than the sum of the parts. Well, she is of a very, very different generation and, and she is running her own show. So 
Uh, I don't think that there's anything I could add to what she's doing. I don't know about that. Um, speaking of travel, you were here with me the last time. Was it the pandemic or is it age? Have you decided that you don't need to travel so much anymore? Well, I was in Ireland, um, in Galway, actually, just before the pandemic hit. In fact, um, I think I left on March the 10th, and on the 13th, the graph in Ireland went shooting up, and they had to cancel the rest of the Galway Festival. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure do. Uh, so I snuck in just under the wire, and of course, during the pandemic, pandemic, nobody went anywhere, and we all had to figure out Zoom with some initially pretty hilarious um, results. It was like the early days of television <laughs> when they were doing things live. So you probably remember the American lawyer who got a cat filter uh -huh, stuck uh -huh. on his head and couldn't get it off. Unfortunately, we're not having as many of those anymore, but Okay, so we did that for, what, three years or so with a couple of little interludes. I, I don't think it's that I have decided not to travel. I think the the occasions for it have become fewer. And um, I've always offsetted stuff like that. But you also have to really uh, think a bit harder about where you're going and why you're going there and do the pluses and the minuses. Yeah, yeah. Is it all a process of, does it become a process of slowing down a bit at some stage as well? Oh, are you saying I'm old, dear? Is that the implication? No, He's I just... not answering. I just, I just, <laughs> I just wondered. I just wonder, does, do, do, I, I'm getting there and, and, and uh, no, I'm an early not. 50. You get to a point yeah. where you, you're not as anxious for action and road and stuff, you know? Well, it depends what you consider action to be. I, I certainly have the, the capability to alarm people on planes when I try to put my own bag up. <laughs> but is that because I'm older, is because I'm short, or because they, they really freak out when I start climbing up on the seat? So I do get a lot of offers. And I say, thank you very much. That didn't to me as much when I was 35. Okay, Margaret, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. The book is called Old Babes in the Wood, and it really is. It's a it's a wonderful book. Well done. Well, thank you and lovely talking to you. Lovely talking to you. Email brendan at rte.ie.